The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, I already gave uh, Dr. Bruce Ware one of the most stirring introductions of his entire career last night. Um, But what more can I say? Welcome, my beloved professor and friend. Father, we pray that our time spent in this, uh, this message together, that we would be able to see something of the wonder of the Bible that will stir within us a deepened desires to delight in your word, spend time in the Bible to, to read and meditate and memorize and, and know this word that is your, your very word to us. And so, Lord, we, we uh, thank you for the privilege of being able to focus on this subject, and, and uh, we pray for your Spirit to be at work, who inspired the Bible, that he would move us uh, to see its beauty and long to, to devote ourselves evermore uh, to knowing the contents of this book, and beyond that, knowing the author of this book that we may know you, the great God that you are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, last night I talked a bit about the framework for the doctrine of inspiration as it's the revelation of God, which then comes to us through human agency. As Paul said, I don't speak with words of human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. So now we're going to focus a bit more on that doctrine of inspiration Uh, And uh, so I hope you have the handout. It'll help you follow along. If you don't, I know there are copies in the back. Uh, The the Bible is is inspired by God is the title of this session. So first of all, let me begin with a definition of inspiration and talk a bit about what the doctrine uh, uh, holds. and, uh, And then we'll take a look at biblical teaching that supports this. So I would define biblical inspiration this way, that biblical inspiration is the Christian doctrine that God, by His Holy Spirit, so moved the authors of the original writings of canonical Scripture that as they wrote what they genuinely believed and freely chose to write, they wrote exactly as God directed them to write. Isn't that an amazing thing? So you don't have in the Bible... Uh, God dictating, except for very small portions. I don't know, maybe you know, one or two percent of the Bible would be in the category of dictated by God. Say these words, you know, and, and so the author would write that or say that, and that's recorded. I mean, that is true for a very small portion, but for the most part, these authors are writing out of their own minds and out of their own hearts. But as they do so, they are moved by the Spirit directed by the Spirit, so the actual words that they write, the actual uh, grammar that they use, the, 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 uh, the actual utterances that they give, though from their minds and hearts, ultimately from the Holy Spirit, so that what is communicated is the Word of God, while it is also the Word of men. It's an amazing thing. So, Scripture... I'm on the handout again, Scripture is simultaneously the word and teaching of human authors, while it is also in every element of its language, prince, that is, 
all of its actual vocabulary, grammatical forms, and syntactical arrangements, which is oftentimes referred to as verbal inspiration, the words, the grammar, the syntax of the Bible, verbal inspiration, and in its entirety, that is, in all 66 books of the Bible, in all of their parts as originally written, that's plenary inspiration. So, while it is the word and teaching of human authors, it is also verbally and fully God's own very breathed out word and truth. So it's, it's an amazing doctrine, isn't it? it it's just a, a marvel to, to think that this book is that. You know, I've heard um, Arminian preachers at chapel at Southern Seminary because we invite in a lot of different uh, denominational dignitaries, some of whom are very prominent Arminians in their thinking, and they have a very difficult time, uh, you know, talking about how the Bible is inspired because they don't hold a view in which God can work through the minds and the hearts of people to do this. And I think that's one, one of the ways that we as evangelical Christian people can urge upon our Arminian friends, if they believe the Bible is the Word of God, ask them the question, how can that be? Right? Were these humans who wrote this? And did they have free will? Yeah? So it, it can help you, you know, begin to understand how the way God can work is through a kind of freedom that we have that corresponds to this. So we'll talk more about that in just a bit. So, fully the Word of God, fully the Word of man, but it's the Word of God through human authors so that what they write is what God wants written. Let, let me make just a comment on what, what might be called Trinitarian agency in biblical inspiration. So, notice the definition that I gave you said that that this is the Christian doctrine of God by His Holy Spirit that He moved these authors to write what they did. So obviously, the the Scripture is inspired by God. So it is the the product of God's out-breathing, as we're thinking of it. And yet, the Spirit is, is indicated in Scripture to be the divine person who is directly responsible in bringing about biblical inspiration, the Spirit moving in the hearts of the biblical authors. So I think that this should be understood in in a way in which you put together a lot of the teaching of the Bible that has to do with how the triune God works in the world. And so often it is this way that the triune God works as the Father is the originator, the Son is the one who takes from the Father what the Father has given him, and then passes this on to the Spirit to bring it, bring it to pass in the world. And I think you see this in the doctrine of inspiration when you put some texts together. So I mentioned last night to you Hebrews 1.1. I'm reviewing from last night, but it applies right here. Hebrews 1.1 that begins with, God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. If you weren't here last night, one of the implications of that is this has to be God the Father. Because only the Father has a Son. The Son does not have a Son. The Spirit does not have a Son. The one triune God does not have a Son. The one triune God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The only one who has a Son is the Father. So the Father is is God that begins Hebrews 1. God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways. And yet in the book of Hebrews, 
at least three times you have specified the Spirit spoke through one of the prophets, through David, through Jeremiah. And so you realize this must be that, that the Father does, originates what is spoken and says this through the Spirit. So the Spirit is the agent of the Father in bringing this to pass. Now, I think this fits with what we see in uh, Jesus' own declaration uh, in, in John chapter 16. Turn there for just a moment, because I want you to see this yourself in verses 12 to 15. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus says to his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he's indicating more teaching, more revelation from him, from Jesus, that he has to give to his disciples. But he can't give them that teaching to them now because they're not ready for it. They can't, they can't grasp it. They don't have the Spirit yet. Okay? But he says, verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now look at this. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, presumably from the Son, from Christ, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So isn't it clear from that text that it is indeed the Spirit's purpose to come and bring to the disciples the teaching of Christ, which Christ gives to the Spirit to give to them. And what's interesting about this is that it parallels exactly what Jesus says about his own teaching. Namely, I do not speak on my own initiative. This is in John 8, verse 28. In fact, look back at that. You can see it's almost exactly the same language. Verse 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Isn't that amazing? So as the Father taught the Son, and so the Son speaks the word of the Father, now when the Spirit comes, Jesus says, He will not speak on His own initiative. He'll take of mine and disclose it to you. So you have this Trinitarian order, taxis, as it has been called through the history of the church. This order in which originates in the Father, is accomplished through the Son, and then brought to us, mediated to us by the Spirit. And so the Spirit has that role of bringing it to us as He is the agent of the Son and of the Father in this Trinitarian work. You know, by the way, I don't know if some of you probably are aware of a controversy that took place over a number uh, over these past several years on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I've been very much involved in that, in that controversy. And one of the things that I, I have noticed my critics just have not wanted to talk about is the role of the Spirit in relation to Jesus. When Jesus says to the Spirit, He will not speak on His own initiative. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. You can't say that the Spirit is in submission to Christ because of the Incarnation. Because the Spirit is not incarnate. The Spirit is God and God only. 
right? The Son is God-man, but not the Spirit. So you just realize this is really a Trinitarian reality, not a submission of the Son to the Father because of the Incarnation. It relates to the Trinity as a whole. Even back in John 8, verse 28 that we looked at, Jesus says in that, at the beginning of that verse, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am, ego eimi, I am God. So the context of that verse is the deity of the Son. So in any case, I, I just think there, there needs to be more care given to paying attention to what is in the text of Scripture on this issue. And, uh, and on, honestly, we need to just be uh, more desirous uh, of following carefully what the Scriptures teach on this issue. Okay, Trinitarian agency from the Father through the Son to us by the Spirit as the Spirit is the agent of bringing insp- in the inspired Scriptures to be. Okay, let's take a look at a couple passages on this. First, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I have the verse there on your handout. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here we see the emphasis is on the Bible as God's word breathed out by him. So when Paul says all scripture is inspired, it's, you know, honestly, it's hard to know how best to translate the word that Paul uses here that is his own, evidently his own uh, coined term that he uses, theopneustos, combining theos and pneuma together, God breathed word but what it does stress is it comes forth from God although we know from the larger teaching of scripture including the next passage we'll look at in second Peter chapter 1 that it's that is that it's brought through human authors human agency but nonetheless the ultimate source for the scriptures it is is that it is from God God breathed scripture and I want to think with you for a moment about the scope of that inspiration. Uh, When Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, what is he thinking of? What is Paul thinking of? Well, I suggest to you that we know for sure that he's thinking of the Old Testament. There's no question about that. Not not the Old Old Testament alone, more to come on that, but he's clearly speaking of the Old Testament. So we know that from the verses that precede. Uh, Look back at verses... Uh, 14 and 15 leading up to this uh, you however continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them that from childhood you have known what the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus so as Dr. Beakey reminded us uh, Timothy had a mother and a grandmother who taught him the scriptures Well, what were the scriptures, the sacred writings? The Old Testament. And of course, that is what Paul would have in mind. You know, questions of the canonicity of the Old Testament were really settled for Christians by dominical teaching, teaching from Christ himself. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. Uh, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. 
where Jesus is speaking of the scriptures. In Luke 24, he taught, he taught them uh, concerning himself from the law, the prophets, and the writings. In Luke 24, 44. So indeed, the Old Testament clearly would have been in Paul's mind as all scripture is inspired by God. The question is, is it more than the Old Testament? And I think, yes, certainly, he would have known there would be more, in part from, do you remember last night? You know, what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God has revealed them, right? So he knows that he has been granted this privilege of being a recipient of further revelation. He knows that Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you. And that revelation would come through the Spirit to chosen instruments in this age right after the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. There would be a period of time in which this revelation would be given until the end of the apostles, right? And so when the, when the apostles are gone, then that revelation ceases in terms of its a, a revelation for all of the church for all people, uh, for all time from that point on, that revelation ceases at that point. The church is built upon Ephesians 2.20. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So indeed, you build a foundation and you're done with it, right? You don't keep building the foundation. You'll never get the house built. You build the foundation and then you build upon that foundation. So the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Christ, of course, is the cornerstone to that. That revelation then provides for the church all that it needs to know. More on this when we talk about sufficiency tomorrow. But all that it needs to know in this age for faith and practice, for life and godliness. So indeed, when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, I'm confident he has in mind the scriptures that are being revealed right now, that are being written right now. You know, Paul would say to the Thessalonians, I'm so glad that when you receive from me the word that I spoke to you, you received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is able to perform its work in you who believe. So indeed, he knows that this word that he's giving is actually the word of God through, yes, another human agent that it comes to pass. So all scripture, uh, meaning what we now know of as the 66 books of the biblical canon, uh, as God has given to us both Old and New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, no, notice in this verse, one other thing I want to point out in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is ontology and function. Now, ontology is a big word simply that refers to what something is, the, it, its very being, its very nature, what something is. Function, of course, has to do with what something can do. And I think this is just a pretty much a universal principle, and that is, Something can do what it does only because it is what it is, right? Something can do what it does only because it is what it is. So, for example, I have a 2009 Toyota Matrix as my commuter car to campus. 
I love that car. It's got a sports engine in it, you know, so it's got more pickup. I can leave most people behind the dust in the dust when I take off from a stop sign, you know. So I, I like this car. But you know what I would never do? Enter it into the Indianapolis 500 race. I, you know, four-cylinder Toyota Matrix. I mean, you've got to be kidding. Something can only do what it does because it is what it is. And it is not a race car. As good as it is, it's not that. So think of Scripture. Notice, notice the order that Paul says this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It can only do what it does, profitability, because it is what it is. So you realize you mess with the inspiration of the Bible, and guess what else you mess with? It's profitability. You can't trust it to actually teach you what is right, to correct you in the the ways that otherwise the Bible is meant to. To, to bring reproof to you, to bring training and righteousness to you, that, that you may be adequate and equipped for every good deed, every good work. You can't trust it to do that if it is not in its fullness the Word of God. <clears throat> Jody and I stepped into a, uh, a liberal church in Chicago one time because there was a service going on. It's right on Michigan Avenue, uh, near the Drake Hotel, if you know Chicago. It's a beautiful church building, and we heard the service going on, so we just stepped in there for a little bit to hear what was going on, and we heard the woman pastor come up to the, the pulpit and uh, open her Bible and say, listen for the word of the Lord as I read this passage. The preposition tells you everything, doesn't it? So, I mean, so we're to try to figure out where the word of the Lord is and where the word of the Lord isn't, I mean, you just realize you just lost the Bible in this. The only way in which we can have confidence that the Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work that God has for us is that it is indeed the full Word of God. So verbal, plenary inspiration matter. What the Bible is matters for what it is able to do. Okay, let's move on uh, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Another just classic text, important text on the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. I have it there on your outline again. But know this first of all, Peter writes, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here the emphasis is on the Bible as God's word, yet coming to us through the thoughts and writings of human authors in and through whom the Holy Spirit worked. So the Spirit works through the human authors to bring about what is the word of God. So three points, very quickly, very easy to see from this text. The first one is that Scripture is not of human origin. Verse 21 makes that crystal clear, doesn't it? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It's not initiated. It doesn't come out of it. It doesn't originate in human thought. That's not what accounts for what we have in the Bible. Now, I think also 
that verse 20 confirms that as well, but the translation that most of our translate I mean, who am I to question these translations? But I do. I, I'm sorry, but I, I question it. So at the end of verse 20, <clears throat> when Paul writes, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of private or one's own what? Interpretation. Now this word, epilusis, is used in Koine Greek literature to translate uh, disclosure, origination, and interpretation. You can see interpretation is disclosing the meaning. So there's very similar idea there in that. But, you know, disclosure or origination, I would argue either one of those would be better as a translation of this term in verse 20 than interpretation. Because, look at the very next phrase, for, so here's the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the causal explanation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, it didn't originate with human beings. So I think verse 20, Peter is also saying there that no prophecy is a matter of private origination or private disclosure. I don't think he has in mind interpreting the Bible in the way we think of hermeneutics, in the way we think of Bible interpretation in the normal sense of that. I think the idea really is, where does it come from? Well, it's not from human origin. And I think both verses 20 and 21 would affirm that. If, even if you don't agree with me on that understanding of the last word of verse 20, verse 21 is clear, clear as can be, isn't it? Uh, it? It didn't come as an act of human will. But secondly, here's the other, I mean, another interesting thing, is humans nevertheless speak forth Scripture. So notice in the, in the final clause of verse 21, who the subject and the verb, what the subject and verb is in the final clause. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Subject, let me hear it. Men, verb, spoke, right? Men spoke. You get it? Now, it's men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yes, we'll talk about that. But nonetheless, it's men spoke. So indeed, this, this is one of the marvels. You know, God didn't have to do this again so often. God has designed his work to be done in a way he didn't have to do. He could have just done it himself, right? Just unilaterally. He doesn't need me to be here right now. Goodness gracious, he could impart this truth, whatever benefit there may come from this, directly in your minds, directly in your hearts, on his own. He doesn't need people to carry out the work that he has to do. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He could do it all. But he has designed in his love for us that we get a share in his work. You see this all over the place. So here's an example of it. The very giving of his inspired word to us could have been by dictation. God just saying, write this down. Exactly, right? Just all of it. But he didn't do it that way. Instead, he moved in the hearts of people so they wrote what they truly believed. They, they, they expressed their own convictions and their hearts' understandings. The Holy Spirit, all the while moving them to write what they write. So, point number three, so even though human beings speak for Scripture, God is the one who moves and directs the human speech of Scripture. 
God is the one who moves and directs the human speech of Scripture. So men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we have the confidence to know that even though they speak with their own idioms, you know, if, if, if you look at the, the different ways that biblical authors speak, even through translation, you can see this. It's, it's easier in, in the original languages, but it, even through translation, you can tell there's particular emphases that John would have that you don't find quite the same in Paul or, or that Peter might have. You don't have quite the same with Matthew and so on. You know, you, you see these distinctive personalities reflected in, in the Bible, distinctive speech patterns and so on that are there. And this is not phony. This is not God, you know, manipulating things to make them sound different because it's just from God in a direct unilateral way. No. He works in such a way that they are who they are with, with their, you know, ways of speaking and, and, and emphases that they want to make. And yet, through all of that, God works in such a way that every single word written, the grammatical forms, the syntactical arrangement, the logical a flow of thought, every bit of it, ultimately, just as God directed it to be. So in the end, yes, this is the word of humans, right? It is that. But ultimately, this is the word of God. And so we thank God for that. All right. This next section, I, I maybe shouldn't have put in. It could be it can be a complicated area, uh, but let me just suggest something to you real quickly here. In Roman numeral four, how can the Bible be both from God and man? And the answer is concurrence, that is a, a working together uh, that is referred to in Reformed theology as compatibilism. The compatibility of genuine divine agency and genuine free and responsible human agency working together in a way that brings about Scripture. Compatibilism is evident throughout the Bible in so many ways. Uh, but here, Scripture, I think, is one of the most beautiful examples of compatibilism. Uh, I, I made a note there just for your own consideration. If you wonder if you're in a compatibilist text in Scripture, and there are hundreds of them in the Bible. It's not just Acts 2.23, although that's a very important one. But it's not just that. There are many compatibilist texts in Scripture. And, and compatibilist texts will have these quali qualities about them. Number one, they will, they will have dual agency. It's on your outline. Both divine and human agents who bring something about. So when you're reading a passage and you ask yourself the question, how did this happen? And you have to give two answers to it. Well, Men did this, certain men did this, the Assyrians did this, but God did it. And either one of those answers, though true, is partial. You have to give both to have a full answer. Then you realize you're in a compatibilist text. But the second thing is, in compatibilism, God always has primacy. It's always the human agent who fulfills what God has determined take place. Third, human agents bear responsibility for what they do. Especially, that's evident when evil actions take place. But fourth, God is always praiseworthy in those very actions. So, what you have with the Bible is a very beautiful example of compatibilism. Where 
Human authors wrote what they wanted to write, but God worked in their hearts. So the very words they chose as their highest desire to say it this way was moved by the Spirit for them to say it that way. You see it? So indeed, the Spirit works within them, and yet, and yet in a way in which they freely express exactly what they want to say. They write the words that they choose, and yet they are words directed by the Spirit as He moves their hearts to want to say it that way. And that's exactly the way God has directed them to do. So it's, it's a, a glorious doctrine, and Scripture is a beautiful demonstration of the doctrine of compatibilism. Okay, just a final point, some, some almost bullet points to, to look at in terms of why inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture is important. First, capital letter A, the full inerrancy or truthfulness of Scripture requires and is required by the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. The inerrancy or truthfulness of Scripture requires and is required by the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. So, you know, the argument here is very simple for inerrancy. It's not complicated. All Scripture is God-breathed. So every bit of it comes forth from God. Verbally, the words used, the grammar, the syntax, plenary, every part of it, no part is left out. All of the Bible is God's Word. Secondly, God never lies. He always speaks the truth. Therefore, all of the Scripture is true. All of the Scripture states truthfully what God wants us to know. So, inerrancy gives us this confidence, does it not, that when we go to the Bible, we always have the disposition to submit to its authority. Did you see that? Because what it teaches as true is true, and so I bow to what it says, period. If you don't hold to inerrancy, huh? you know, old books, Dr. Beaky, you would know this better than anybody, would sometimes be published and then they would find mistakes in them, right? And so later they would put out an edition of that book with a page in the front of errata, right? Of, oh, on page 82, there's a mistake here, and here's the correction of that, right? Well, you know what? If the Bible has mistakes in it, there's no errata page at the beginning that tells us where those are. Who's responsible to figure out where those mistakes are and, and where they're not? We are. So who, who is in highest authority then when it relates to the Bible? Well, it's us who can decide like some of my professors at Fuller Seminary, when I went to Fuller for my PhD work there, had just decided, you know, when Paul talks about wives submitting to their husbands, you know, we just have to realize that's just Paul's way of thinking from his Pharisaic days and hasn't really experienced the fullness of what it means to be in Christ now, even though he knows that, he doesn't really see it here. <clears throat> and so it just reflects his earlier Jewish ideas that we have to reject as false. If you think I'm making this up, read Paul Jewett. Man is male and female. This is exactly what he argues. <clears throat> so we realize we become the authorities. We come to the Bible and we have to be the ones who decide what is acceptable and what is not 
isn't this exactly what happens in liberal denominations? They're the ones who decide what is acceptable and what is not. They discard what they don't want from the Bible. They're the authorities. So the only way to avoid that, the only way, is to have a deep conviction based upon solid evidence from Scripture that it is the Word of God and therefore is entirely true. So I never have the question enter my mind, can I accept the truth of this? Can I, can I accept the teaching of this as true? No, I just need to know what that teaching is so I know what to bow to, right? The only question is interpreting it right. You know, getting my understanding of it right. It's not whether or not I should accept it once I know what, it, what the truth claim is. Oh no, we bow to it and accept it. Secondly, capital letter B, the full authority of Scripture is required. It requires that Scripture be both inspired and inerrant. I think I went into this point already. I mean, I, I, ver, I, I merged points one and two uh, in this. The full inerrancy, but then, of course, the full authority requires that Scripture is fully from God. Uh, capital letter C, the full sufficiency of Scripture requires that it is fully God's inspired word containing all that God has chosen for us to know. We, we have to know that this, this is all that God wants us, knows that we need to know in order to confess the Christian faith as we ought and to live the lives that he's called us to live. Uh, and, and more on this tomorrow when I talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Cap letter D, the inadequacy of general revelation and the need for special revelation, especially Scripture, for knowledge of and belief in God's saving work in Christ. So we are so grateful to the Bible for all of its teachings, but in particular for the gospel itself. That gospel is not printed out in the universe. Though the, the created world displays the invisible attributes and, and the eternal power of God, it doesn't display the cross of Christ. How do we know the cross of Christ? Through his revelation that he's given to us in the Bible. So no one is saved by general revelation. In fact, Paul's point in Romans 1, 18 to 20 is, uh, so they are without excuse, right? So we stand condemned for rejecting the God of general revelation. There's no hope of being saved through general revelation. We have to know the gospel of Christ. Uh, witness Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how shall they call upon whom, him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear of him whom they ha who, who is not preached? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those. So indeed, people must hear the gospel of Christ to be saved. And then finally, the last point, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures illumines Scripture to bring about our salvation and enable us to grow in sanctification. So you just realize there is a, uh, a rationale, as it were, to our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture by the Spirit and our understanding of it by the Spirit. This is how intent the Spirit is on us getting it on us understanding it. Do you know he is for you 
in your Bible reading. I, you, you say, this is really difficult to understand. Sometimes it is, you're right. You know, but, but do you know that the Holy Spirit stands ready to, to help you see things that are otherwise very difficult to see and open your eyes to understand it? So pray regularly that the Holy Spirit would open His Word to you and open you to His Word, right? Both, both sides of that prayer are very important. Holy Spirit, open your word to me. Help me see what's there and open me to be receptive, to, to, to bow to it when I see what it truly is. It's his work to do that in our hearts. So praise be to God for his inspired word by which we know the word of God. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible thing that God has given this to us and apart from which none of us would be saved. No, none of us would grow in Christ-likeness. None of us would have hope for eternal life and what, what's to come after this age is over. And hasten the day, Lord Jesus. We all pray, yeah. So, what a gift this book is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege we've had just to reflect briefly on the inspiration of Scripture that gives us confidence to know that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, the only book that is the Word of God, without qualification, without exception, and in, in its entirety. So, Lord, give us hearts that long to know that Word better and live it out in ways that would bring honor to your name. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.